Our Bible reading for today is coming from the book of Mark 14, verse 1 to 11. I will read. Now the Passover feast, now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the Leaper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and made of pure nut. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, and you always help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she, had, she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Portia, thank you very much indeed. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, You've heard in the prayers that today is our vision day. It's our AGM, as it were. And just a word about the logistics. At the end of the service, we'll have coffee outside and we'll nourish you with a biscuit so that you've got some sugar in your blood and can come back fully focused uh, for the presentation of our plans for 2021. So do please stick around for that. A short interval at the end of this service and then we'll get going again. Do please keep your Bible open at the passage that Portia read for us a moment ago, and uh, as we turn to that, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. And now we pray for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills to put it into practice. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, when we were uh, planning the preaching programme for 2021, we decided that we were going to finish our series in Mark's Gospel on Easter Sunday. Uh, we began, you might remember, just before lockdown last year. Uh, in order to do that, we've had to do a bit of fast footwork, and therefore we've skipped over chapter 13. That's not because it's the most difficult chapter in Mark, perhaps the most difficult chapter in the entire New Testament, but it's simply so that we can actually finish Mark on Easter Sunday. So here we are at the start of chapter 14, which begins the final section of Mark's book. Uh, Chapters 14 to 16 are known as the Passion Narrative. And uh, why is that? Well, the word passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. And the theme of these tremendous chapters is Jesus Christ suffering in order to give you and I a fresh start with God. Uh, But before we see a whole crowd of different people rejecting Jesus, Mark begins the Passion narrative by introducing us to a woman who reveres Jesus, uh, who worships him, who honours him. It's a famous event, I'm sure some of you know the story very well. But what really challenges me is what the Lord Jesus says about this woman almost at the end of the story. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, I think it's hard to read that and not to think, Jesus, do you really mean that? Or are you exaggerating? Of course, it's a terrific moment. But wherever the Gospel is preached, I mean, is this event really that significant? Why does Jesus say that? Well, I think the part of the answer is that it's recorded for us in three of the Gospels. Which means, of course, that it's impossible for any regular Bible reader to miss it. Uh, Sooner or later, inevitably, they're going to come across this episode, which, of course, then leads to the betrayal, uh, the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion. So, over the centuries, literally millions of Christians have read about this woman. I think a a helpful way to think about the passage is kind of as a doorway into the suffering of Christ. And the contrast is very striking, isn't it? It, It's almost as if this event, which is so beautiful, that's the word Jesus uses, that this event, which is so beautiful, scandalises everything that follows. So before we see what evil looks like in the death of Christ, we're actually going to see what grace looks like. And the two things I want us to notice are immediately apparent in the first couple of verses. Notice in verse 1, we're told that the Passover was just two days away. Now, every Bible reader knows that that's telling us that God is moving towards his goal. 
At the same time, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. And so they're moving towards their goal. So you see, you've got these two powers at work. God working towards his goal of salvation and these religious people working towards their goal of murder. It's not an accident that all of this happens at Passover. Uh, As you know, Passover was the time when Jewish people remembered their big rescue from Egypt. But actually their big rescue from Egypt was a small rescue when compared to the infinitely greater rescue that Jesus would accomplish through his death. So although the enemies of Jesus have been plotting to remove him, nothing is going to derail the plan of God. The greatest evil that has ever been done in the history of mankind, the crucifixion of Christ, is going to be used by Almighty God for the salvation of millions. But you see, these two powers on the surface, they do appear, don't they, to be pulling in opposite directions. God is at work. Sin is at work. And you see, I say that because this passage will help us, you and me, work out where we stand this morning. It's inviting us to ask, am I under the influence of God so that my life has already changed and is continuing to change? Or am I in fact under the influence of sin so that actually my life and my appetites and my priorities are moving in a totally different direction? So there's this woman and there's Judas. They're both in the same passage. They're both close to Jesus but they're moving in opposite directions, under the authority of two different powers. So our two headings this morning, just two headings. Number one, what does it look like when God is at work? Number two, what does it look like when sin is at work? So first, what does it look like when God is at work? Well, it's two nights before the cross. From the other accounts, we know that this happened in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in the Gospel of John, we're told that the woman with the perfume is Mary. Uh, So Mary is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And although we can't be certain, it seems that Simon the leper is the Father. Now again, we know from the other Gospels that this woman, uh, who breaks the perfume over Jesus, she's a believer. Uh, She's a saved woman. Uh, She's a grateful woman. She's already a spiritually rich woman. So, you see, she's not coming into the room saying, um, I wonder how I can impress Jesus. Oh, I know, I'll give him a massive gift of perfume 
and he will say to me, because you did that, you're saved. That is not what's happening. She's already been immeasurably enriched by Jesus. She's already received mercy, she's already accepted, she's already got eternal life, she's already got a marvellous future. So spiritually speaking, she's already as rich as anyone possibly can be. So her actions here are pure gratitude. She's giving back a tiny fraction of what she's already received. So even if we only had Mark's Gospel, it's important to see that here is a lady who comes to Jesus out of sheer thankfulness. And I think it's a great reminder as Easter approaches that if you want to get right with God, it is actually a matter of receiving salvation. You can't earn it and you certainly don't deserve it. No, you simply need to stop what you're doing and receive what you need, what actually all of us need. And then you'll be a forgiven, new and useful person. There's no point in saying, well, actually I'm going to climb up my ladder and get my way into heaven because that's going to get you precisely nowhere. You've got to actually receive salvation. So think of it this way. There is no point telling a pirate to be good. I mean, he can't. He's a pirate. Instead, what we've got to do is we've got to tell the pirate to get off the pirate ship. That's repentance. And then we've got to tell him he's got to get on board the king's ship. That's faith. And when you've done that, you'll begin to be useful. Friends, you see, that's the gospel. Get off the ship, which is against Christ, and get on the ship, which is Christ, and you'll be safe and be able to live a useful life. There's no other way to get right with God. So, this woman comes to thank and honour her king, and she breaks this jar of perfume. By the way, notice that's the end of the jar, isn't it? No one's going to use the jar again. There's no going back. Just as there's no going back for Jesus. And there's no going back for disciples. So there's no going back for this woman and her jar of perfume. It's all given to Jesus. And it's not a small gift. It's not a small gift. According to verse 5, it was worth a year's wages. What is that in today's money? I think it's rather difficult to work it out. I did look at one government website which suggested, I can't believe this, it suggested that the average salary in South Africa is 270,000 rand. That's got to be wrong. But uh, because I don't know what's right, let's take that as a working theory. Here is a bottle of perfume worth 270,000 rand. Now, I don't know what you ladies spend on a bottle of perfume. I mean, I imagine you can get a perfectly decent bottle for under a thousand rand, am I right? But you see, here's a, here's a bottle that's worth 270 times more than that. But even that's only a tiny token 
a tiny token of what she's already received from Jesus. And in order for us to understand what's motivating her behaviour, I thought we might look at a few marks of God at work in this extraordinary story. First of all, I want you to notice that it's significant that it's a woman here who gets Jesus right. I'm sure you know that most people in the Gospels don't get Jesus right. They're clueless. But here somebody does, and it's a woman. And I point this out because Mark in his Gospel records 15 different women responding to Jesus. Now one or two of them are bad news. Uh, Herod's wife being a terrific example. But most of the women, most of the women in Mark's book are faithful and impressive and Jesus took a particular interest in them. So long before anybody was talking about equal rights for women or anything like that, Jesus respected and cared for and protected and bestowed special dignity on women. So if the church today ever gives the impression that women are somehow second-class citizens, I'm sure you can see we've made a huge mistake. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus blurred or ignored the God-given roles of men and women which are different in the family and different in the church. But the Gospels do show us that women have a very, very special place in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. Second, notice that Jesus protects this woman from the people who are attacking her. In verse 5, she's rebuked harshly for showing her gratitude to Jesus. And immediately Jesus defends her in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Now I think that is a reminder that Jesus never willingly afflicts anybody. The whole of the New Testament confirms that. Uh, Jesus doesn't willingly bring trouble on anybody. And here's Jesus defending this woman from unnecessary trouble. And the important thing is, you see, his character hasn't changed. Still the same Jesus today. And he will defend you from all unnecessary trouble. Which means, of course, when you do go through trouble, as all of us do from time to time, well, you can be absolutely sure that that's part of his loving plan and purpose for your life. Thirdly, this woman gives her perfume to Jesus. Notice the last two words at the end of verse 6. Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. Now can I tell you that when God is at work in your life, this is actually one of the first things that happens. You suddenly find yourself saying, I see, it's actually all about Jesus. Now, I used to think it was about the music, or the coffee, or the singing, or the chatting after the service. But suddenly I, I see it's actually all about 
Jesus, you suddenly see that he is supreme and unique and priceless and loving and gracious. And and you find yourself being drawn to him until you actually connect to him. And that's what you see this woman is doing. She's interested in Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do, and how she might respond. And can I say, I think this is really important for anybody who's trying to serve the Lord in any capacity, whether that's in a church or at home or at work. Wherever it is, we need to keep saying to ourselves, I'm doing this for Jesus, not for the pastor or my husband, or we're doing it for Jesus. Slight diversion. How can Jesus say what he says in verse 7? Look at verse 7. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. That sounds on the surface a little bit insensitive, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus is saying, forget the poor. They don't really interest me. But of course, you know perfectly well it can't mean that. That Jesus was always giving himself to the poor and the needy. And he's also not saying, there are always going to be poor people around, so get used to it. He's not saying that. Jesus taught us to love our neighbour continually and especially to look after those in need. But you see, what he is doing here is he's teaching that when you are given the opportunity to connect with Christ, that is the first thing you should do in order to be safe and useful. It is, if you like, putting commandment number one before commandment number two. He's saying, get to love him before you try to love your neighbour. That's what he's saying. Get to him before you try and be useful to the poor. Do I need to say again this morning that every single person, if you haven't done this already, needs to make a quick RSVP. Do we all know what that is? Responding to an invitation. We all need to make a quick RSVP to Jesus if you want to have the beginning of life and the beginning of usefulness. Don't spend your energies on causes while you are still cut off from Christ. Connect to him first and everything else will fall into place. If you go through your life and you miss Christ, having been perhaps wonderful with the poor and wonderful with the causes of this world, you will discover too late that you've not been serving Christ in this world and therefore you won't actually meet him in the next. So verse 7 is a great kindness because Jesus is saying, I want you to get to me quickly. And this woman gets who Jesus is and isn't it wonderful that 2,000 years later she is remembered just as Jesus promised but the people who didn't or wouldn't come to Jesus, they're forgotten. 
The fourth thing I want us to notice is in verse 8, where Jesus says these beautiful words, she did what she could. It's a lovely phrase that, isn't it? I think it's one of the most encouraging phrases in the whole of the New Testament. You see, there were so many things this woman could not do. But she did what she could. And you can't miss, can you, the lovely tenderness and gentleness of the Lord Jesus here. And perhaps you're one of those people who beats yourself up and thinks, well, I should be doing more, I should be serving more, I should be more energetic in the cause of Christ. Well, if that's you, just remember what Jesus says here. He sees what she does, and he says... She did it for me, and she did what she could. So in light of this really delightful story, I say to you this morning, do what you're doing for Christ. And do what you can. You can't do any more than that. And don't beat yourself up with impossible and totally unrealistic expectations. Fifthly, I think it's safe to say that this woman gets the cross right. Uh, She had understood the gospel. Uh, She knew that Jesus had to die. That's what Jesus says, isn't it, in verse 8. He says, She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. You know, she's the only one, actually, who seems to realise that Jesus is on a costly journey. She's obviously listened to him because Jesus has been saying, I am going to Jerusalem to die. But, of course, Peter and the other disciples didn't listen, did they? Uh, Peter said, we're just not going to let that happen, back in chapter 8. James and John said well, we don't really understand what you're talking about, but please can we have the best seats in your kingdom? Uh, The crowd on Palm Sunday said, well, this is absolutely marvellous. Jesus is going to deliver us from the Romans. You see, when Jesus spoke about his death, no one was actually listening, except this woman. She understood something of the cost and the breaking of this incredibly expensive perfume over Jesus is just a tiny reflection of that. So friends, when God is at work in your life, you get who Jesus is, you do suddenly realise that he is unique and supreme. You put your trust in him, you realise that he is your only hope, and you begin to live for him. And you realise that the cross is the place where all of the promises and all of the blessings have been secured for you. And your life is never the same again. Before Christ, it's me, me, me. How can I maximise my benefits and minimise my sacrifices? But when you come to Christ and he changes you, all of that goes out the window and you find yourself thinking, I've already received the maximum. How can I pass some of this on? So that's the first thing. 
That's what it looks like when God is at work. And I'm sure that you'll agree with the verdict of Jesus that it's a very beautiful thing. Secondly, and much more briefly, what does it look like when sin is at work? There are some very dark clouds, aren't there, in these verses. Did you notice this? Verses 1 and 2, Passover, chief priests and the teachers of the law looking for a way to kill Jesus, and then at the end of the passage, verses 10 and 11, Judas looking for a way to betray Jesus. Now, you and I know that the world that we're living in today is extremely keen to remove Christ. If you haven't twigged that, uh, you haven't been paying much attention. Schools, colleges, even religious institutions, governments, our world is very keen to rub out Christ. Now, can I say, you and I are not meant to complain about this, uh, because the opposition that you and I have to deal with in South Africa is very modest indeed compared to other countries. South Africa is not North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or Libya or any of these other places. And God wants you and I to remain cheerful. And we are meant to endure whatever suffering or persecution or opposition we might experience. But I also think it is a shameful and a shocking and a humiliating thing to realise that if Jesus Christ came to Cape Town this morning, most people would actually be against him. For a country that claims to be Christian, that is a disgrace. Most people would actually be against the best person the world has ever known. And I think there's something seriously wrong and dark about that. And so you see... I have to say, while you're here in church this morning, which is great, this is the right place for you to be, you might want to just check yourself and see whether deep inside you perhaps have a strange desire to go away from Jesus, to put distance between you and Jesus. Sometimes the opposition to Jesus is violent, as it is, In the Gospels, Jesus is going to be crucified. And today, the opposition to Jesus is often violent in many countries around the world, the countries I mentioned a moment ago. But sometimes, sometimes the opposition is quiet, intellectual, academic, sophisticated, cultured. And what you and I need to remember, this is so important, brothers and sisters, what you and I need to remember is that we are not naturally neutral towards Christ. No one is naturally neutral in their attitude to Jesus. We have a natural bias, rather like the bowls on Constantia Bowls. Have you ever watched people playing bowls? They have these balls which are weighted and they curve away or they curve away. We have a, it's called a bias. That's how you and I are. We have a bias to roll away from Jesus. 
until he brings us to our senses. And uh, his resurrection does mean that all of us are going to stand before him one day. Some of you listening to this might not know that, but we are all going to meet Jesus Christ one day, face to face. And when we do, he is going to decide our eternal future. And since the decision about our eternal future is based on our response to him in the present, well, our response better be a good one, hasn't it? There's no point in responding negatively or dismissively to Jesus now, hoping that one day, by a miracle, he'll respond positively to you because he won't. No, respond to him positively today and he will respond positively to you in the future. The problem, (coughs) here's the problem, the problem with this is that we actually, all of us, (coughs) allow our personal preferences to shape our response to Christ. That's what we all do by nature. Um, Aldous Huxley was a famous writer and philosopher of an earlier generation and along with many of his friends he embraced what he called a philosophy of meaninglessness. Don't worry about that, you don't need to trouble your mind with it. But that was his worldview. Was it sincere? Was it honest? Well, later in life, Aldous Huxley admitted the truth. This is what he said, quote, listen to this. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. Now, here's the punchline. We objected to this morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's the truth. You see what he's saying? Huxley and his friends rejected Jesus not because they'd sat down and read the Gospels carefully and honestly and arrived at a a conclusion with integrity. Not that. They rejected Jesus because they knew that becoming a Christian would interfere with their sexual freedom. Now, how many people in Cape Town and the various countries you represent have done that today. Not a few, I think. And the point is that so often you see the rejection of Christ has got absolutely nothing to do with the facts and everything to do with the desire for an independent life, a desire to be unaccountable to anybody. I want my freedom. Well, in our passage, when the, the people see the woman giving this wonderful gift to Jesus, they actually can't see that the real problem is them. They're the problem. It's not the woman. And so let me say to you again this morning that if there's anything keeping you from Jesus Christ, whether it's your work because you're so busy or your family because they're so special 
or your hobbies because they're so time-consuming. If anything is keeping you from Jesus Christ, ask yourself this question. Am I, in fact, slitting my own eternal throat? That's a good question. Because there is nothing more foolish than keeping away from Christ. Notice in verse 5 that uh, these people pretend their criticism is justified out of a sort of self-righteous concern for the poor. We're really concerned about the poor. The money could have been given to them. But of course that's just a smokescreen, isn't it? It's a cop-out. And at the end, of course, Judas emerges in his true colours as he goes to the religious leaders and he says, I'll hand over Jesus to you. You couldn't have been closer to Jesus than Judas. Look what he does. In return, verse 11, they promise to give him some money. And it's pretty easy, isn't it, for us to imagine him slinking off into some corner and plotting how he's going to betray the Lord. So, have we got the contrast in this passage clear in our minds? Is it, is it blazed into your brain this morning? Uh, God at work bringing this woman uh, to salvation and to gratitude and on the other hand sin at work driving somebody away from Christ into great evil. And you might be asking yourself, well Simon, what's the point of all this? Uh, What's this got to do with me? Well, as we go out to our various places of of work or whatever this week, we're going to see these two different powers at work with our own eyes. God is at work. He's at work in creation. Nowhere better than Cape Town to see that. And he's at work in the new creation, uh, bringing people to Jesus all over the world. And when he brings people to Jesus... Uh, they are beautifully transformed, beautifully transformed. And they find themselves grateful. They find themselves sacrificial. They find themselves fruitful. And God is doing that great work this morning. But sin is also at work, moving people further and further away from Jesus. And it is so sad to see it. Sometimes it's aggressive. Sometimes it's cultured and sophisticated. And you may find yourself surrounded by people who think very differently to you about Jesus Christ. That may be your situation in the office, I don't know. Somehow you've got to remain steadfast and keep going. One writer puts it rather well. He says this, You may be surrounded by people who say they have the same priorities as you and share the same goals as you, but their choices reveal otherwise. Watch the choices. And on the basis of this passage this morning, Jesus would say to you, when you are mine, live your life for me and do what you can. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this window 
into the world we're living in. Your work in the world and also the work of sin in the world. Father, we are just so thankful for your mercy. We know that left to ourselves we would walk away from Jesus forever. And so we thank you for bringing the good news to our ears and your grace to our hearts. And we pray this morning that you would help each one of us respond like this woman with tremendous gratitude as we seek to serve you and to do what we can. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.